Awesome job, guys. Thank you. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And welcome to those of you who are brand new or kind of newish to our church still. We're glad you're here. Glad you're back. And of course, to the rest of you as well. Good to see you all today. Um, we are in the Gospel of John. I think Dan mentioned this. We're in chapter 11 today. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible or a phone app, you can turn there if you'd like. We're in chapter 11, verse 1, and I'll get to more of that here um, in a second. But this is the first part of kind of a three-week mini-series on the story of Lazarus. And there's been a setting change. Uh, if you were here last week, Jesus is now with his disciples in the small village of Bethany outside the city. And uh, like Dan was mentioning, this is a story of Lazarus who has a terminal illness and who we'll see today will die, but Jesus will rise him from the dead. And so uh, we're, we're, I guess we're kind of wrecking the ending if you don't know the story, but it's in a good way. It ends really positively, but not without a lot of bumps in between. Um, but I think that what makes today's passage and story so exciting, um, and stories like this too, but maybe especially this one, because it gets so deeply personal, is that it's a small glimpse into the heart of God and the question of what God feels when he finds out that we're in trouble. And so this is really our story as well, like Dan mentioned. Uh, but if that's a question you've had, and maybe you didn't even know you had that question until I just said it, but... Um, what is the heart of God like when he finds out and hears that we are needy or sick or dying or in trouble? And this story tells us that answer. All right, so let's read today. Um, today's sermon is called Love, Death, and Glory. Uh, we have kind of some big themes to cover today. We'll, we'll get to all these. Um, but let's start reading verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Okay, so three different angles today. Um, thematically, you could say um, we'll, cover, we'll cover a lot here, but leave a lot um, unsaid, too, because we have two more weeks after this. But uh, three different angles on the first installment um, of this story. The first um, is this. Uh, this is a story about love. And uh, we get into some verse 5 as well as verse 3. But I think that the first thing to address here um, right off the cuff because, uh, is this, because this is something that's missed a lot when reading this passage. Maybe not for all of you. I think it, I, I would say personally for me, this is something that um, when I've read this story before and thought a lot about it and heard others teach it, uh, it's something that is mentioned but maybe skipped over a bit too quickly. Um, but I think it's primarily 
a story about love. Um, and by primarily, I mean it cl clearly starts with mention of love, it's very explicit, um, and I'll argue as we go that I think this serves as one of the major motivating factors uh, behind Jesus' actions this week and into next and the following. Alongside the theme of glory, which you probably saw when I read, uh, but we'll get to that in, in just, just a minute. And the presence of love here is both explicit and implicit. Uh, it clearly says that, there, that there's love in Jesus in verses 3 and 5, um, but it's also implicit in how the woman sends word to Jesus. So uh, it's a very simple thing, but when, she is, um, when she's in trouble, when her brother is dying, she simply sends word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is, is ill. Uh, and in, in the 4th century, Augustine noted about this verse that the woman uh, doesn't invite him to come. Do you notice that? It's kind of interesting. Uh, we think that maybe that's there sometimes, but she doesn't have to even say that. Uh, she doesn't invite him or even ask him to heal Lazarus. All she says is that he's ill, that he's sick. He's, she simply sends word to Jesus, uh, which, is, which is to say this, uh, and these are Augustine's words, um, but it's if she's saying this, it's enough that you know he is ill, Jesus, for you are not one who loves and then abandons. All right, uh, now here's the first plot twist. Uh, in today's passage, Jesus loves you all in the exact same way. Uh, you and I are ill in our sin, but we are loved. Uh, and, and I think to really get a, a sense for what this passage is trying to say to us, we need to write our names right over the names of Lazarus and Martha, especially in verse 5. Um, you know, if, if, your, if your life story was written into a novel, at one point in the story, Somewhere in the middle, uh, it would say, now Jesus loved, insert your name, now Jesus loved Chris, now Jesus loved Monica, now Jesus loved Jess, now Jesus loved Dan, he loved Tara, he loved Aletha. And from that point forward, everything was going to be okay, even in the face of, of death itself. And, um, I mean, Dan was saying this before he played that last song, but if we don't read these stories as theology, if we simply read them as history, they just simply won't have the same punch and, and we'll miss the point. Uh, the Bible does this to itself, actually, elsewhere in the Old Testament where it, it gives a story and then it says the phrase uh, to David, in this case, uh, you are the man, uh, you are the person in, in this story. And that's actually, if you know that story, kind of in a negative light uh, when, when Nathan says to to him, you're the man. Uh, this is a very positive thing, though. Uh, you and I are in the place of Lazarus. We're in the place of Martha, the mourner, uh, the sad one. We're in the place of Lazarus, the dying one. And if we don't put our name over Lazarus here, we, we miss the idea. These stories are meant to be microcosms, uh, not islands of history, but microcosms of theology uh, for us to have. And so, I don't know if you noticed this, too, but... Um, in the way that John writes this, uh, this is a story about not just love, but one-way love. Uh, this is a story about Jesus' love for us, not so much our love for him. Uh, and yes, we get a sense for Mary's love for Jesus here and how she uh, used her hair to anoint his feet. Um, but that would happen later in chapter 12. This is here John writing after the fact, giving us a clue as readers which Mary he's talking about, because there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. If you never noticed that, there's tons of Marys. And so he's like, this is, this is who I'm talking about. Uh, it's the one who used her hair 
and her tears uh, to anoint her feet and to prepare, her, to prepare him uh, for, for burial. And even so, her love is not mentioned explicitly. Uh, instead, it's clear that Jesus was the one who loved. He's the explicit lover. He's the greater lover. Uh, and so we, we have that theme here for us to hold on to and find hope in. And, and especially when, again, we go back to the idea that it's the same with you. It's the same with me. Especially if you're a Christian. If you're not, I hope there's, there's hope in this for you as you consider the claims of Christ and the teachings of the Bible here. But if you're a Christian, this is your story. Uh, the, the, the love that stands at the center of your faith is not yours for God. It, it is not a litmus test for your maturity as a Christian, but instead, his love for you every single day. And his love's not a carrot held out for you momentarily so that you instead would, would have great love for him. But instead, it's constantly, constantly given, uh, given to us. God's love for us is, uh, is one way. And, and I would say, too, true love does not demand love in return. True love, this is true on a human level as well, true love does not demand love in return. And if God is true love, then we'd expect to see that in him. And we do. He does not demand our love. And if you look at the Bible, the Bible is actually kind of a story of these two ideas um, coming together around Christ. Where in the Old Testament, you have the law saying to people, love God more. Love God, people, you, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the gospel does not say that. The gospel is not love God. The gospel is God has loved you when you haven't loved him. That's good news. And those are different. You can't blend those two together. They must remain distinct. Or the latter thing, the grace or the gospel, becomes something that it isn't. In, in Romans 9 or 11, Paul says that if grace becomes about us and what we do, if grace is mixed with works, it ceases to be grace. You cannot blend law and grace. And so these two ideas of love God or uh, to, to us and in the New Testament, God saying, the Bible saying God loves you no matter what, stand at odds. And the Bible ends with the better thing. Uh, the gospel is the better word. And we're seeing it play out right here before our very eyes in John 11. All right, let's move on to this next section, which is a story. This is also a story about the glory of God, quite explicitly uh, here, let me actually read it again to kind of uh, catch you up. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, they said this illness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that, that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. All right, so um, another twist here, right? Uh, maybe you caught it, but if there was a problematic word in this passage, it would probably be the so in verse 6. So the Bible saying here, Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill. He was his close friend. He loved him. So, or because of all of that, he stayed two more days before going to heal him. Uh, he's not exactly springing into action here, Right? Uh, but, but there's a connection between the love and the so. He loved Lazarus, so he didn't go to him. He loved Lazarus so much that he wanted him to die so he could heal him. And so others could see that. That's, that's the idea. Um, so 
He could lead us to stiller waters than he might otherwise be able to lead us to if he would have gone right away and healed him just from the physical illness. That, that's the idea as well. So yet another way we could say this would be there is something greater than Lazarus not dying. All right, there's something greater going on to Jesus, and this might be probably was not seen by the people in the story. This is certainly not seen by us in our day, in our day today. Uh, but but God sees things perfectly clearly. He understands all the moving parts. And here there's something greater than Lazarus staying alive. And it's not just that it would create an opportunity for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, though that's certainly part of it. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. It's more than that. Verse 15 actually helps us understand. Actually speaking to the disciples, so people watching this happen as well, he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So another way to say this would be kind of going off what I said before, is that... um, that people might not believe is more important than there being no suffering. So that people might believe in God. That people, might, that people might believe in the gospel. That people might believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That's more important than there being no suffering in people's lives or in the, peop- the, the lives of people here in, in, in this story. And that's a really difficult teaching. I, some of you guys might be hearing this for the first time or you're, maybe you're bringing a lot to this whether you feel like you've understood this pretty well or not. Um, I know there's probably a range here, and that's great. Um, but the Bible's not shy about this. Uh, the, the Christian God is, you know, um, we say here a lot, it, he's not simply one side of the force, as in Star Wars, uh, but, but rather the, the Bible paints him more in, in the light of he's over evil. He is sovereign over it, not the cause of it, but still not surprised by its presence in the world. And he even uses it for a greater good. Uh, Genesis 50, 20 is one of the best places you see this. I don't know if it's on screen, but it's when uh, it says, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. So what people are intending for harm, intending for great evil in the world, God means that very same thing for a good, for a, a greater good. This is the Christian God. This is how he works. All throughout the pages of the Bible, all the smaller stories and all the bigger stories, He remains in control, not the cause of evil, but the one who is over it and divinely intending its uh, existence for uh, a greater good purpose. This story also, I think, brings to clarity uh, what our greatest problem is. And I've kind of been saying this already, but um, not all of life's problems are created equal. Because you could say, even just looking at the story, you could say the sickness, Lazarus' terminal illness, and the fact that there's disbelief or a lack of belief or trust in God, those are both problems. What the story is saying is they are not on the same level. They are not created equal. And so to, to get at the bigger problem, the greater cancer, if there's a scratch on our skin and a cancer in our bones, those are different problems. And the, one of the problems actually is actually a third problem. The third problem is we flip those around a lot. We don't understand that they're on different levels. And so unless someone tells us that, that problem, until we have the, the, the x-ray or the scan or the blood work uh, to understand there's something deeper going on, and we don't know. And, it, and it's, it's, it's the same here. The story brings to clarity 
what our greatest problem is. And John, the author here, as well as Jesus himself, are saying that living in a state of disbelief is worse than death. Living in a state of disbelief in God, distrust in him, uh, distance from existing apart from him in any way whatsoever is the greater problem. It's not to deny the, 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 the lesser problems in any way. God cares about that, but and clearly because he's going to deal with that here in this story as well, but there is a bigger problem. There, there's greater things at stake. And I, I actually put here to you really all forms of suffering uh, because disbelief is sin. Disbelief is, um, is, is self-promotion. It's, uh, like, I said, like I said last week, it's, it's um, putting up a statue of ourselves in the place of the ones that we tear down. So if we are like Lazarus in this passage, and we are in more ways than one, then we should expect these, these types of lessons to kind of be underscored in our life through suffering and also apart from suffering. Um, but maybe part of the good news, though, here is we don't have to fully believe it for it to be true. Nor do we have to understand it for God to be guiding our lives to a happy ending through the pain we experience. Uh, Tim Keller once said, just because we don't see a reason why God allows evil and suffering doesn't mean that there isn't one. And so we can kind of rest in the, um, the, the, the un-understanding, sort of the, the, the blackness and the blindness that we have knowing that God sees perfectly. All right, but here's the thing. With all of that said, um, John 11 is not here just for us to try and understand the why behind, behind our suffering. Uh, I think that's where sometimes teachings on this passage go a bit awry, is when we make it a lesson, as if this whole thing happened just, just so we can understand the great why behind why things are so terrible for us in our life right now. Uh, I don't think that's the main thing. Uh, a lot of times we won't, again, like I just said, we won't understand that. And so to say that we can, I think, is naive. And I think it goes beyond what, what these broader truths are trying to say uh, in their guiding of us and in their, in their consolation of us through pain. But instead, though, I, what I think this ultimately is, this is kind of a turning point here in the sermon. So, and I think maybe in our reading of this, there's a turning point at some point that we're supposed to see. Dan actually mentioned it too uh, as he was uh, setting up that last song, is that this is a reflection of something greater. That is, Jesus' is suffering. Uh, the, remember, these stories are all forward-looking. It's so easy to get off the track of that or the path of that where we forget and we stop and say, well, this one isn't forward-looking. This one is about some kind of uh, pat lesson for us on a human level. And, and, and this, this one might be one of those places for some of us. And um, and that's okay if that's you. That's okay. It's normal to think that. But this is an invitation to not think that, to not treat this differently than other types of prophecy in, in the Bible. And so this is a reflection, I think, John 11 is, um, on something much better, something greater, something that does not pertain to human beings uh, alone or us, but to the human being, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his suffering. Because if you think about it, Jesus' sufferings and death is the ultimate thing that created an opportunity for the glory of God. God got the most fame, the most renown, the most city-on-a-hill-like thing that ever when he died on that cross for our sins and, and, and rose again. That, that was the thing. 
he set out to do. And so Jesus' death, his suffering, created the opportunity for that when he died for enemies, when he died for sinners. Or you could say it this way with the second sentence. It's his suffering is the ultimate evil that God intended for good. See, this is why we think this way. We don't just think this way as Christians. Should not just think this way as Christians because there's this random uh, theological lesson verse embedded in Genesis 50 somewhere randomly. But instead, we start with the gospel. We start by saying, what happened at the cross? The top of the pyramid, the goal of all things. We say, well, there, that's where God used humanity's worst devised evil of all time, killing the Son of God, use that for the greatest of good, which is your salvation, your acceptance, your washing. And so we can kind of think in a bookending kind of way here. If God did that out here on the bookends, and that's the greater thing, how much more can he use evil in my life for good? Even if I have no idea what's going on. But if we don't start on the outside, on the periphery with the bookends, it's a lesser truth, I think. It's a little more of a misguided or aimless subdoctrinal idea um, and not a gospel-anchored hope. All right? And so that's what's happening here, ultimately. And that kind of leads me to this, la- this last section, which um, I'm going to talk about a little bit this morning, uh, not in, in super depth, but I want to encourage you guys, if you're here, or if you keep reading this week, to look for this theme as it kind of goes throughout the rest of the story, too because this is the most important part, is that this is not just a story about love and glory, but about the costly courage of Jesus set next to our fear and powerlessness. All right, so let me read verses 8 again and following. The, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to, are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is actually, as an aside, this is one of my favorite comedic moments of all of the New Testament, where the disciples are like, well, if he rests, he'll be fine, you know, Jesus. Like, that's like what doctors tell you. Like, get your sleep. And Jesus is saying, guys... He's dead, all right? Like, as if, like, the metaphor wasn't working, so he had to, like, kind of get the room back, you know, and, and speak more explicitly. But, um, but humor aside, uh, it actually is a great example of how your Bible hangs together. This, too, is an aside, by the way. I'll get back to this in a second. But uh, the Bible moves from less clear to clear. The Bible moves from less plain to plain. The Bible moves from parable, I don't know what that means, prophecy to weird stories in the Old Testament that keep us in the haze and the fog to the crystal clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a microcosm of how God, Jesus the Son of God, wrote the Bible, how the whole thing hangs together. Like it moves from Lazarus is asleep to Lazarus is dead. It moves from less clear to clear. And so if you actually even just have that in your mind when you read the Bible, um, you can glean a lot more, I think, than you otherwise would, but, but I digress. All right, let's go back here to uh, this section and talk about this story as a story of Jesus' not just courage, but his, his costly courage. And I want to say or encourage us not to bury the lead. Um, I've been saying this, but I'll say it again. Let's not bury the lead and, and miss the fact that Jesus 
does go to Lazarus because he loves him. And he doesn't just go, he goes at great risk and great cost to himself. Okay, so don't miss that last part. He doesn't just go in love, though he does. He goes at great risk and great cost to himself. This is where the theology starts to sprout up, like little green sprouts out of the hard brown earth. This is where the meaning comes rushing in and sprouting up. The disciples are saying, Jesus, you literally, if you are here last week, you kind of know this in context, but Jesus, you literally just left a place where the Jews were trying to arrest you and kill you. And now you're going to walk right back into that? Like, are you insane? Like, that's basically what they're, what they're saying here. And, it, you know, at this point, you could probably, probably pick, like, your favorite movie cliche, you know, where the, the protagonist says to his team, we have to go to such and such place of danger. And the team, like, stares back in bewilderment. It's like, what are you talking about? You're going to break into the most secure facility of all time? You know, like, um, like in every movie, right, that's ever existed. But that's basically what's going on here. Jesus is being extremely courageous, and, and he's putting his own interests in the back seat. Uh, this, this is partly what I think um, his are there not 12 hours in a day comment is all about. It's very kind of cryptic teaching that Christians have disagreed on um, throughout history. So there's confusion over it. But I think the greater idea is that Jesus is the day and the 12 disciples are the 12 hours. And, and so to, to be in Jesus is to be in the light, like hours are in the day and not the other way around. So his counsel is, guys, stay with me and you'll be okay. Uh, That is a very crude summary, but it's true. And that's what he says to us as well. If you're in me or with me, you will be okay. Nothing can touch you. You are bulletproof. And, And when I say that, I don't mean, and nor does Jesus here, this is not a promise of physical safety. Everyone dies. Christians are persecuted. We all have bad stuff happen all the time. What Jesus is saying, in the face of all of that, you're bulletproof. In spite of it all, nothing can touch you if you're in me. I, this is another place where Jesus is saying, I am the answer. Not something you do, not moralistic teaching that I have for you to, to, to live your life by. I don't have life hacks for you today. I'm saying, if you're an hour and I am the day, then are there not 12 hours in a day? Live in me. Find your life in me. Believe in me and what I'm going to do for you. And that will be counted as your righteousness. That will be counted as sufficient for your salvation from, from our worst nightmares. All right, let me get back to what I really want to say with this section, which has to do with the issue of costly courage. And it's subtle But this is really why Jesus goes to see Lazarus at all. Uh, He went to make it clear that Lazarus' healing and his resurrection will be associated with Jesus' sufferings. All right? So in this case, it's it's these things here. It's the fact that there is a clear risk of Jesus getting stoned to death and arrested. Or even just the fact that he expended energy at all to walk there when all he had to do was say the word from afar to save him. Um, you guys remember that story elsewhere in the Gospels where there's this sick kid and, and a centurion sends word to him and Jesus says, um, go, your child is well. Or he just says the word from like miles away and the kid is well. Well, why can't Jesus just do that here? 
We have to ask these questions, right? The other story is there to give meaning and theology to these stories here. Because sometimes he doesn't throw the word, be healed from miles away. He actually goes. And for someone that actually goes, that's going to mean you're stepping on rocks. Your muscles will get sore. You'll get cut. You'll breathe heavier under the noonday sun. You will suffer. Not just that, but he's going walking into his enemy's lair, basically. This is not just Jesus going. This is Jesus going at cost to himself. Also in verse 16, uh, Thomas helps us see this when he says, let's go that we may die with him. And whether Thomas means to be courageous here or defeatist, uh, we don't know. People disagree on this. Um, But more important than understanding in what sense Thomas says this is just that he says it. And the way it reads is that it implies Jesus would die, even though we know he wouldn't immediately do that if we know the rest of the story. Maybe you don't, but he's not going to die yet. not his time yet. But the theology remains. The passage, the way it reads, is Jesus goes to suffer that Lazarus might be awakened. Jesus goes to suffer that a Lazarus might be raised from the dead and, and, and healed from death. Jesus' sufferings are the channel for our healing. This is so important to see in the Bible. Like the Bible says this clearly sometimes. Here it's implicit, granted, but still held out like a literary device for us to see plain as day. Substitutionary atonement. That the healing doesn't just happen. It happens at cost to the Son of God like it ultimately will when he dies on a cross for, for our sins. So, so Jesus' sufferings are the, the conduit. It's the channel. It's the how behind the forgiveness of sins, behind our spiritual sin and spiritual death. They don't just happen alone. They can't happen alone. This is like, I mean, this, this uh, maybe draws us to when Jesus says, uh, when he prays in Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And God the Father's answer is there isn't. There's no other way for people to be saved other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world, becoming just like you and me, to die as us on that cross, as you, as a human, but specifically by name for his church, for his bride, dying in our place. There's no other way, no other way If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, his arrival is bad news, not good news. If he came just to do a few amazing things, but not actually die for our sins, bad news, because God is here, and there's no atonement, just judgment to expect. So this is what what John 11 is teaching us. This is what it's saying. This is the most important part uh, for us to get, and we'll see it in the coming weeks as well. but I want to end, though, with uh, just a word on, on all of this. And again, I've kind of been saying it, but the, the importance of what I'll call a gospel anchor to the story of Lazarus' suffering and death. Um, by that, I just mean the importance of seeing the gospel in this story. So I, I was kind of getting at this before. I know you guys are bringing different things, uh, different backgrounds maybe with this, different teachings, some right, some wrong, some in the middle maybe, I don't know. 
Um, some of you are hearing this for the first time, which is super cool. Um, but without like this type of seeing Jesus' sufferings in the passage, without that type of gospel anchor, what tends to happen with passages like this is that it is reduced to a lesson on how to trust God better when you suffer. That's what happens. If we, if we leave the gospel out and we look for, well, what's the point? What, what it gets boiled down to is you need to trust God better when people in your life are dying. And some of you might be thinking, come on, that never happens. Oh, it happens. Trust me, it happens. In your heart, in your head, without the right gospel guide, hermeneutically or interpretationally, or just by a misguided preacher or teacher or author. It doesn't matter. Full spectrum. Without the gospel, it's about you and what you can learn and glean and how you can be a more mature spiritual thinker. Now, there might be a secondary invitation here in this passage to trust in God's timing and to know that he's in complete control over all the chaos. Those are good things. That he intends to use them for good and eventually bring them to an end forever. That's a good thing. But more than that, this passage is about the gospel. So here's why this is good news. Whether we suffer well or not, Jesus suffers for you. Whether we have neat little bows tied around our theology uh, and have it all figured out or not, Jesus dies for you. Jesus suffers for you. Whether we doubt or lie on our backs in a tomb, Jesus suffers for us that we may be made alive. Or said differently, it's okay if you struggle to trust God through suffering. It's okay. You're normal. You're not less of a Christian. You're not disappointing God. You're not less saved. Because this passage, the point is not you. It's him. It's the gospel and what he does one way for you every day of your life. The point is Jesus and his substitutionary sufferings for us in love. Where God calls out to us saying, this is how much I love you. This is what John is saying, what God says to us. You are just like Lazarus. I love you in the exact same way. That's God's word. God's word is, this is what my heart is like for you when you suffer. And many of you are suffering right now. My heart is like my heart was for Lazarus in John 11, in, in real time. Do you believe this? God says through John 11, this is what I went through, what hell I walked into to heal you and to save you. I was very willing to walk into it, to take the blow, to take the bullet, to walk into the very tomb that your body's lying in to pull you out in the wake of my triumphant resurrection. See, that's the point. When that's the point, all the other stuff can just kind of filter into whatever. But this is not a lesson, you guys. This is not a litmus test for how mature you are necessarily as a Christian. There are invitations to think a certain way and to renew our minds, absolutely. But this is about Jesus and his love for you. If you miss that, if you, let, if you shelve that, put that over here on the shelf and let it gather dust, 
it will invariably become a lesson on how you can better trust God through trial. And if it's not, kept, if it's not caught, you know, you'll, you'll find yourself at funerals questioning why people are crying so much. Because why don't they trust in God more? Like, this is where it ends, and it's not a pretty spot. But I'm, I hope that it's freeing for you. I want it to be, for me too. Um, this story is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not ultimately about his sovereignty over, over evil in your life. It's about his sovereignty over evil in Jesus' life on the cross. And yes, they're kind of related, but those are not on the same level. Believe in him. Believe in his glory on the cross. His love on the cross. Through death, through hell, and out the other side for our redemption. Let's pray.